Anna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. As an avid um, piercing fanatic, I was excited to to see what you've opened and started as an incredible alternative to what I grew up with, which was just Claire's. So I'd love for you to share with the listeners what Studs is and what gave you the idea. Sure. So Studs is an ear piercing and earring experience that my co-founder and I founded and brought to life in 2019. We were really trying to reimagine the combination of, let's call it, the tattoo parlors and a more elevated experience than maybe what you had referenced. And the origin story really came when I went to get another piercing and I was probably, you know, 33 or 34. And I went to a very high-end piercing place slash jewelry shop in New York and they didn't take appointments and they told me they were going to have to wait. I was going to have to wait two hours. Um, and I ended up going to the tattoo parlor. And while the piercing experience was great, it was done with a needle, which is healthy and safe. Um, and I really liked my piercer. The jewelry was not to my liking. And also I was very personally out of place at the tattoo parlor. And then obviously the tattoo parlor doesn't sell earrings. Right. And I really thought to myself, oh, wow, like, what do you do if you've graduated, as an example, from Claire's? Um, where do you go? And the answer is, for most customers, to the tattoo parlor. And so Studs was born out of that premise that, the, that there was a real opportunity to create something new that customers would love. So you launched it in 2019. You had about a year of operating before... Uh, the world fell apart. I'd love for you to take me through those moments and how you pivoted because, you know, you were primarily a brick and mortar service. You're touching people, you're, you know, <laughs> piercing people. Um, and yeah. what went through your mind as that occurred? So we actually, we, we had been working on the business for about a year before COVID, but we didn't really even launch until November of 2019. So we had like three and a half months of great operations before the world shut down. And at the time we had two stores and we had just, I mean, two weeks earlier, we had opened our second store. Um, And so we obviously immediately had to close both stores and we spent most of 2020 really focused intently on our e-commerce business, which we had always known that we would get to eventually, but definitely didn't plan to get to, I think, you know, four months into the business's life. And I think the biggest challenge of it was, you know, one, you're going through, obviously, just as a human in the world, um, it's an incredibly scary time, right? Independent of being a business owner or a founder, it's just, you know, what is happening. And I actually was pregnant with my first and two. So I was going through personally, the, you know, fear of what is COVID-19? What does it mean for me as a person? What does it mean for my unborn baby? I then ended up having the baby on April 14th of 2020, which was the peak day of cases in New York City and the sort of first wave of COVID. And I had the baby overlooking the recently built field hospital in Central Park. Um, And then all of the things around, well, what is going to happen to studs in this environment? And so we were very lucky, I think, to be successful in pivoting our business and our focus to e-commerce for 2020. But more so, I think we were really lucky that when we reopened our stores in September of 2020, that people 
came back, right? Like there was some possibility that because ear piercing sort of definitionally is an elective procedure, so to speak, that people would be like, you know what, in the midst of a global pandemic, I don't need to get an ear piercing. I, I need to go to the dentist, but like I can skip the ear piercing for now. But in fact, like customers came back in droves. And I think it was, there was so much pent up demand throughout the pandemic to just get out and do something that felt good and exciting and experiential that we were really lucky because we've never really looked back from there. Like the business, the fundamentals around the business weren't changed because of the pandemic, which was amazing. I think that I found myself in a lot of my interviews asking about the pandemic just because I feel like it forged a certain type of entrepreneur and a mindset of resilience and persistence during those moments, did you have doubts and how did you sort of pull through them? It's interesting. I think for me, they always talk about the concept of like good wartime CEOs. And I think that that is one thing that I am good at. And so I think I I sort of very, was very focused on there's no way out but through. And Mm -hmm. I think for us, at least, it, the thing that it proved to us, which I really love about the business, is that it's high. That in and of itself, the business model is highly resilient, um, and I think that's great. And I think the interesting thing is there were some businesses that were really, I think, fundamentally or institutionally changed by the pandemic. Where, as an example, let's say, um, call it in-person fitness, right, or in-person fitness classes, things like that where you sort of wonder, going to the movies is a great example, where you sort of wonder, like, will people ever get back to that in the way that they were pre-pandemic? Or did the habits just change so substantially during that period of time that you can never really return to the quote-unquote before? And I think we were really lucky in the sense that we found that that wasn't true for our business, which was very reassuring. But that isn't to say that during these moments of I wasn't saying to myself, like, wow, we may have really stumbled upon a obstacle that was totally exogenous. No one could have predicted and will kill the business, right? But still, the only way out is through. Either we're going to learn that the business is going to die because of this, or we're going to learn that we have an incredibly resilient business, and we were very lucky to learn the latter. So how did your wartime approach plus new mom, how did those two things either intersect or (laughs) explode? Yeah. So it was interesting. So I think, you know, I both, I think the thing that makes a good wartime CEO is also sort of being very glass half empty and not glass half full. And that I think is both good in those times and can be bad in times of like abundance, if that makes sense. Um, And so the way I really approached both my personal life and what was going on in terms of giving birth and also the company was to sort of assume that we were going to be in this period of pandemic for much longer and in much, call it more reduced circumstances, so to speak, than many people wanted to assume. You know, I think a lot of people remember at the beginning of the pandemic saying, oh, we'll just close the office for two weeks. And all of these companies will just close the store for two weeks. It'll be, we'll close the office for two weeks. We'll go home for two weeks, right? Everyone thought it was like, this is a two-week thing. And I was sort of in the, this is a multi-month thing. And so everything was about contingency planning around that. And if you sort of force yourself through that mental exercise, you are willing to do harder things faster then I think the if you're in a two-week mode where I'm just on pause, I was sort of like, no, no, things are fundamentally different here and I need to react both personally and professionally in that way. 
How did you, how did you get that sense? Cause I didn't have that sense, but my, my brother did. And he's like, we're laying off half the workforce. We're closing our stores. Like he was just went into like aggressor mode. And I was like, whoa, buddy, this is just two weeks, you know? Yeah. Well, two things. One, the way that my personal anxiety manifests in general in my life is to imagine worst case scenarios. Like that's how I operate. And I think it helps me feel better. Imagine the worst case scenario, plan your way through that. And then if it's better than that, you will only see upside. So I think that's just like how I'm built um, and how I handle my own anxiousness. And then separately, I really did in the studs case sort of believe that the worst thing that we could do was furlough people um, and then bring them back early, right? Like, and so I, I said to myself, the dangers of waiting too long to sort of see how this plays out equal us becoming a frog in boiling water. And that outcome felt much worse to me than taking quick and decisive action and ending up being wrong and inviting people back to your stores early, inviting people back to your company early, like that alternative seemed much more preferable to me than being like, wow, we overstayed, you know, we sort of overstayed our welcome in a way that doesn't make sense. Yeah, totally. How did you decide to A, raise money and then B, how did you manage through that you know, when you had to shut your stores and I know you focused on e-com. So I'd love for you to talk about how you sort of pivoted there. Sure. So when we originally raised, it was in 2019 pre-COVID and we raised on the idea and we were very lucky, my co-founder and I, because I think there was like an elegance and the simplicity of the idea that people really responded to. Um, and we're really excited about like everyone sort of, when you would describe studs, they were like, Oh, this should exist. Why doesn't this exist yet? So that made it, I think, easier to go out and raise at the time. It was also obviously, I think, economically, you know, 2019 through, let's call it early 2022, were very favorable periods of time to be out there fundraising. And so I won't deny that, obviously, I think the climate helped us. Then we ended up raising our Series A um, from Thrive Capital right before COVID. And we were just, I mean, incredibly, incredibly lucky to be able to close that round about two weeks before the world shut down. And I think had we even been a month later in our fundraising process, we would have been totally stalled. Um, and so that was really like, we were lucky for that. And then the biggest thing that was on my mind, given that we had closed the round, was you know the premise of capital whenever you're going out to raise, and in particular when you're going out to raise venture capital, is that the money is meant to fuel growth and really to the extent you can achieve it, um, exponential growth. And so I was very focused on how do we preserve the money and not spend it to wait out a period of hibernation, which also really drove how I behaved and thought about the business during COVID, where I was like, everything that we do here needs to be in pursuit of either a different kind of growth than we had imagined, i.e. coming from e-com and not from stores. And we have to preserve as much of the money as possible because if this is, and if this does end up in a period of extended malaise or extended, you know, sort of sequestration to our houses, we need to have as much of that money as possible at the end of that in order to grow in the way that the money was really meant to fuel. How much of that came, you know, that guiding instinct and sort of persevering for those nine months came naturally to you? Or did your previous role sort of prepare you for that mentality? I think mostly actually more naturally than 
job oriented, if that makes sense. And I, the reason I say that is because until, well, I guess I, I would, I would caveat it in two ways. One, the job example that I had experienced that did definitely prove that, you know, periods of time like this, of times like this were possible were that when I graduated from law school after I went to college, I graduated in um, 2010 and I actually did my interview for my summer internship, which is very important in law school in terms of where you end up working on the day that Lehman collapsed. And I remember going into the firm where I was interviewing, where I would ultimately end up working. Um, and the partner interviewing me literally was like white as a sheet. And I was sort of this naive, you know, 23 or 24 year old, right. Who didn't really appreciate how dramatic and important that was going to be for what was to come in terms of the great recession. And I think that experience, both in terms of ultimately getting that internship and getting the job, but also having many colleagues at the time who didn't get the internship and didn't get the job, I think was my first real taste of like, wow, the so much of what happens to you in the workforce is not up to you and is up to forces at play that have very little to do with you and, and that you can't control at all. And so I think that experience was very formative to me in terms of um, really understanding like that things can go south and that they can go south in a way that you have to be prepared for and you have to be able to lead a company through. And then, like I said, I think just my own, you know, way that I deal with my own anxiety is to always be a glass half empty, what could go wrong? How do I plan for what could go wrong kind of person, which again, like I said, is good in times of challenges and not great in times of abundance. (laughs) I feel like that 2008, 2009 recession really as, as hard as it was for people personally, like if you lived through it as a business, you were prepared for what just happened in a way that people gen you know younger millennials or gen z or people who hadn't experienced being working then were just like what what the fuck totally totally and i think what's interesting is i'm watching it now for because obviously the economy today is not what it was a year ago is definitely not what it was 18 months ago right And you're watching a lot of people today, I think, go through this for the first time. And you you realize, like, it's a really challenging emotional thing for people, right? Because, again, it's you're sort of realizing for the first time in some, like, macro sense that it's not about you. And that um, experience, I think, is a lot to emotionally metabolize. For sure. Uh, it's yes, unless you were there and lived it and survived it. It's, it's really hard to say why was this so good for us, but it, it turned out to be our biggest source of growth at the time. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So what does your day-to-day look like now that you've reopened, you have a thriving e-commerce site, um, and how are you sort of looking towards the future? Yeah. So, you know, we have 16 stores now about to open our 17th in about a week, um, and then have several more coming online in the first half of this year. So the business is growing, which is really exciting. And then more importantly, I think, you know, it's that the team is growing. And so your the way your job changes as a founder is in the beginning of a business, you are the force behind the thing. Like the thing comes to life because you make it come to life. Now the thing comes to life because the team makes it come to life. And your job, I think, changes tremendously to become how do I build the best team that feels empowered and supported and like they're working in a culture that they think um, can make and allow them to do their best work. And I think, so I think the whole sort of um, day-to-day experience shifts from being a doer on the ground, making decisions, getting literal work done in order to make your business move forward to actually being like the fuel in the engine, if that makes sense, versus um, being the engine itself. Yeah. So did you feel like you had to go through a learning curve of I'm guiding this, I'm leading this, I'm growing it. Okay, now it's you and, you know, you meaning your team. Um, And how did you, how did you navigate that? Definitely. And I think that learning curve, you know, I'm still on it, right? Like it's by no means done. And I think the interesting thing is leading a team of five people, let's say when you start a business and you are one of the like key individual contributors and the leader of that team is really different than a team of 15 is really different than a team of 50, which is where we are now from a corporate perspective. And then I think we'll be really different than a team of hundred or 500. And I think the skill sets required to do each of those things are incredibly different. Um, and I think for me, every, you know, call it jump has been a work in progress. And so I'm really interested in, learning and developing myself and how do I get to be the best leader that I can be at each of those stages. And also I think being self-aware enough to know that there will be points at which like I will be out over my skis and how do you create the network of people around you, be that your executive coach or your peer group um, that you spend time with that can help you sort of navigate that next level. It's almost like a video game, right? Like you just can't be confused that you are in one and the levels are progressing. For sure. I think that my my personal biggest struggle is was team growing it, delegating, knowing when to stop, you know, or or even this fucked up like, oh, I'm remote right now while I have baby, like do they not respect me because I'm remote? Mm-hmm. Like it's just this constant like I should be there, but they're doing okay, they're doing great. <laughs> totally, and I also think it's the constant pressure of like at the end of the day, the business's success doesn't just ride on you anymore. And both that is like relieving in a certain way. And also I think more stressful in another way. And so I think it's the balance of how to think through that and also how to 
effectively enable people to achieve success on your behalf, but also not make every decision for them. For sure. And navigating the relationship with your co-founder, how has that worked and where do you guys cross over and separate and how have you dealt with conflicts over the years? Yeah, so we are really lucky and we have a wonderful relationship um, and she is integral, I would say, to the reason Suds has been successful. Um, she is our chief branding officer. She has she is the reason Suds is like cool and people are excited about the brand in the world and I am the reason Suds is functional, if that makes sense. So I sit over all of the operational responsibilities. She sits over all of the marketing and branding responsibilities. Um, and so we both naturally, I think, have our lanes based on our skill sets and strengths and interests. We also were friends for a really long time before we started the business. And so that, I think, has definitely helped us navigate um, when we've had tough times or conflict, et cetera. And then separately, you know, we have an executive coach that works with us individually and works with us as a founding pair. And she is critical for us, right? Like we, the most important thing for me is that we are constantly very transparent with one another about things that are going well or things that need improvement. And the executive coach will often help us navigate things like that when we're having challenges interpersonally or challenges that we need help resolving that are about the company. So have you guys ever had, I mean, my brother and I worked together for 17 years and there were times where we didn't speak for nine months at a time, except for, you know, work-related things. Did you ever have anything that felt hard to resolve and how did you kind of fix it or repair it or yeah. Yeah. We've never had like major rifts. We've definitely had periods of time when we've been like significantly frustrated with one another. And I think the most important thing that's helped us resolve it beyond our coach who is, you know, like our therapist and our mediator, et cetera, is also realizing that we just want the same thing for the business in the end. Right. And we also share a lot of personal values, which I think is really important, but knowing that we are both out there to create the most successful, you know, biggest legacy brand that we can is I think very motivating to us to be like, well, we have to work through any disagreements because we want the same end. Um, And so I think that has been really critical. And then, like I said, I think we just share a lot of the same values. We're both very direct. We're extremely self-aware. We're very focused on not trying to spin things into the way we like them to be, but rather looking at things as they are. And I think that has helped. Totally. I think that what you just said about you both want the same result uh, puts it in perspective sometimes when you're having an argument over something. Right. So I'd love to hear, you know, what keeps you up at night? What worries you, you know, and, and what excites you about the business? Yeah. So keeps us up at night. Um, one is I think just everything going on macroeconomically is definitely very challenging. Like I feel, you know, I think we both couldn't have picked a better time to start the business and also couldn't have picked the worst time, if that makes sense. Um, and so I think that's, Unlike the Great Recession, this period of time feels much more like extended malaise with a sort of unknown end, if that makes sense. Um, and so I think that definitely keeps me up. Uh, being pregnant right now and having another baby in a few months definitely also keeps me up and how I'm going to balance having two kids and having this business. And what does that mean in terms of you know my maternity leave, et cetera, et cetera. Definitely keeps me up. Um, And then in terms of, I guess, the business itself, you know, I think what I feel really lucky for is that the business has 
incredible product market fit. Like people really love it. And so I feel, feel really excited about that. But then you always also wonder to yourself, okay, but will that, how long will that last for? How do you keep the brand exciting and relevant? How do you not become stale? How do you make sure that that's always true versus just true today? And do you feel like you figured out how to future proof? No. And I think the most important thing is, is sort of actually being paranoid about it rather than feeling like, you know, the answer. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think I'm, um, I'm definitely paranoid about it. And I, what I really also try and think about a lot, at least from a brand perspective is how do you, when you are no longer your target market, right. And I'm a bit older now than our um, key customer, for example, I think you have to become almost like an anthropologist where you're really like studying the customer as um, sort of like a subject, if that makes sense, um, versus being like, oh, well, this company is made for me, right? And so I think you have to start to divorce yourself and what you would do for yourself if you're not the customer and how do you start to think about the customer as differentiated from you and how do you keep up with them and what they want? You know, my co-founder and I both love the, the work of Clay Christensen, who was this Harvard professor who um, wrote a lot about this idea of the jobs to be done, that people hire products to do jobs for them. And that when more, when new products come out that are either more innovative or better solve the problem that they're trying to solve, people will switch at that moment. And so I'm very focused on why would they continue to hire our product if studs is our product? Because we all need more ear piercings. Exactly. And you, and you need them done with a needle in a cute and healthy, safe environment that sells great earrings. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So where can people find your stores and also your website, all the, all the places? Sure. So you can um, visit us at studs.com. That tells you where all of our stores are. We have them all around the country now um, in most you know major markets. Um, and we'd love to have people come in. And if you come in, what you'll find there is we only do ear piercings. We do them with needles and never with guns. Um, and then we sell really affordably priced and high quality jewelry that you can adorn yourself with once your piercings have healed. Love it. So two things I like to ask all my guests before we wrap is what is one thing we'd be surprised to know about you? And I do want to know how many piercings you have. And what is a piece of advice you'd like to leave uh, my listeners with? Uh, surprise to know about me is um, I have, well, I have seven piercings, which I guess isn't a surprise given I run a piercing business. And, but I do have a tattoo, which many people don't know. Um, I'm actually in the process of getting it removed. And when people, if you know me well, people are very surprised because they don't think that I'm a quote unquote tattoo person, but I'm actually in the market for more and new tattoos, which I hope my mom doesn't listen to this because she will be horrified to hear that. Um, and then one piece of advice I think is, I think if you want to start your own business or um, do anything entrepreneurial, the biggest thing that nobody talked to me about is both, I think, the length of time that creating anything really successful and enduring will take, which is that nothing successful was built overnight. And people say that, right? But I think living that is really different than um, people telling you it, which is there are going to be tremendous peaks and tremendous valleys and that it really is a marathon and not a sprint and that um, anything that is incredibly successful overnight likely won't last. And so I think, you know, my biggest piece of advice for people is both to know that and then really to have the endurance to navigate that. For sure. I love that. Well, thank you for being on. And um, I can't wait when I'm back in the city to go get pierced. Thank you so much. We'd love to have you. 
I just wanted to thank you guys for listening to today's episode. I also want to ask you to rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. I know it's a pain in the butt, but it actually helps with search and algorithm. So if you love this podcast, it is an easy way to get it more visible and out there. I also want you to follow me on Instagram at Rebecca Minkoff at RM Superwomen and be sure to check out my book, Fearless, The New Rules for Unlocking Creativity, Courage, and Success. Thank you again. And you will hear from me next week.